Playback on RTE Radio 1. Sponsored by FexcoCurrency.com. Your route to great rate travel money at participating credit unions. Good morning. All eyes down under for the World Cup. And this, from Galway's Sweet Lemon Day, is all about the girls in green. Energy straight out the gate Run them up with my booty I came out the place See the sun coming up New day On summer long Gonna kill it Replay Sydney, Auckland Making waves with my girls down under Fit it out Head to toe with my colors We gon' be the best in it I'm certain Strikes defeat Fast as lightning Sound like thunder Yeah, yeah Feel the power Push the limits See the hunger Turn the world round Shut the show down Oh, what a tune. You'd almost tug out yourself for that one. And that is RTE's song of choice for the FIFA World Cup coverage. And on Thursday against Australia's Matildas in Sydney, Fira Powell's team went all out, but it was not to be. No chance. No chance for Boston. Super quality for Scotland. And Australia need one nil. That goal from captain Stephanie Catley giving Australia their 1-0 victory. But we did go into this as underdogs, so it wasn't entirely unexpected, although we were a bit disappointed. Samantha Labrary was on the news at 1, and indeed, Samantha Labrary was kind of everywhere this week. Well, I'm watching the Irish team here as they wave to the Irish supporters in the crowd who've hung around to, to cheer them on despite the result um, they, they looked quite disappointed as they passed us here a few minutes ago and you might hear still there's a few Olays echoing in the background the stadium has pretty much emptied out but you know there, there had been hope as, as this team went out at half time they'd managed to stave off the Australians attacks and it was a scrappy first half with neither side really making an impact but that penalty in the 50th minute um, changed the game focus will now shift to the next two games and they're not going to be easy asks either remember we're flying across the country to Perth it's, it's quite a substantial journey actually the team themselves go back to Brisbane first then they make that journey and then they face Canada who are the Olympic champions then they're on to Brisbane to face Nigeria and I suppose we won't know how either of those teams are until we see their games in the coming days but um, it's an uphill battle from here but as I said you know nobody went into this game expecting Ireland to win they knew uh, you know they were playing the hosts they were playing the opening game um, and in some ways there was less pressure on them than there was in Australia. Australia have delivered, um, you know, a decent scoreline for them and they have the three points. So, you know, it's, it's, it's the focus now will be on that game against Canada. And it has been said pretty much all week long, but it's worth repeating. This was a momentous event for women in sport in Ireland and a long time coming. On the News at One, live from Dailyman Park, Gavin gave this introduction to the fans there. Half a century of battling through bad facilities and bad attitudes. And for the hundreds of young girls at Dailymount today, in jerseys and waving flags, many of them players here at Bowes, those battles aren't over. But Ireland at a World Cup is a huge boost. Laura Whelan has been talking to some of the over 500 people watching here today. And definitely I think for young girls to see the inspiration that any... You can do anything you want, you can get to the World Cup. It's unbelievable in any sport. Well, I think it's just so special that we've qualified for the World Cup that uh, 
they've embraced it and it's her first time down here and she got to kick ball there in the hollow turf of Daly Mount Park so the weather's playing ball at the minute. Oh, mad into soccer. Yeah. Liverpool and Man United. We work in the community, we're a youth group, but oh, these great. two lads came up from Sean McDermott Street, the best part of Dublin, to represent uh, Dublin 1 and support the women in the Ireland match. Oh, well, they see that women are just as good as men, and they're well able, and they can go out and represent their country, make us proud. We're from Cabra. And tell me, why are you here today? To support the Ireland. And are you very excited for the match today? Yeah, very. Are you girls soccer players yourselves? Yeah. And Mommy, you've got two girls here who play. In terms of inspiration, how important is a day like today? Uh, you, you can't buy this sort of um, inspiration for kids. It's absolutely amazing. They both play for bows. They're both huge soccer supporters anyway. But for them to be here today and to see how hard it's been for the women to get to this point, I mean, hats off to them. It's been an unreal journey. And as somebody who stands on the sidelines every weekend, this must be great for the next generation of girls coming through. I actually coach them. <laughs> I started on the sidelines and very quickly got involved. Um, so, yeah, I, we were expecting to see many more girls coming up to try and join the team now. And on Wednesday's Live Line, women who had been trailblazers. With Katie, this Republic of Ireland player. It's going to be a very, very big day for you. This is Jackie McCarthy. Jackie. Uh, hi, guys. How are you doing? So, yeah, it's going to be a massive, emotional day. For me especially, you know, yeah. it's like my babies have grown up and they're off in Australia. This is 50 years in the making for me from the shy 11-year-old kicking a ball in Shelburne Park, dreaming about playing with Ireland, not to mind getting to a World Cup. And but it's when, going to happen. It's a reality. When did you get your first cap? I got my first cap in 1993, um, about six months after having my first child. So I don't know which one I was more excited about. (laughs) (laughs) Don't say that. Don't say that. Yeah. Uh, So so there you were. You had a six-month-old and you had a big match. Yeah, yeah. Um, Played against Northern Ireland. I'll never forget it. And just standing there on the pitch with my teammates and having on the Irish jersey on you, that moment when you hear the first two beats of Oranavian and you're singing your heart out with your teammates. Um, it's a feeling like no other. It's, it's so hard to describe. But for me, it was a combination because I'm a person of colour to be able to say this, makes me visibly Irish. There's nobody can take this moment for me. This jersey that I'm wearing is mine. I'm Irish and I'm proud and I'm representing my country. And she and her team had tugged out and played. When to do so involved very little but the love of the game. It must have been, I mean, obviously things have changed a lot in terms of our attitudes towards women's sports generally, but the Irish uh, the, the Irish uh, women's soccer team in particular. And we know not too long ago at all now they were uh, very much second class citizens in terms of um, the facilities that uh, and the treatment of them. What was it like in your day? Well, in, in 83, you know, I came along and I thought, brilliant, I'm playing for for Ireland. You know, I, I won't have to be paying for anything, my travel expenses, everything. You know, I had made it to where I wanted to be. Um, that was not the case. Um, boots, socks, 
jerseys, shorts. Thankfully, my local sports stores, Stevie Gleason in Limerick, used to give me the shorts and things. I would go up to Dublin for trials. You had to pay for that because you were invited up, you know. So you paid for that for a couple of weeks. Then, if you were selected, you had eight weeks of training sessions in Dublin from Limerick. Um, if I was working, I had to get the time off work. I paid my own expenses. My friends would put me up. Um, often I had to go up with my young children and bring them with me. Couldn't afford a babysitter to look after them for the weekend. They came with me. So everything, it was only on the final match day. I always remember we got £42 and that was for a night in a hotel and our train fare up on the day of the match. Other than that, you paid for everything. But it was the honour. It was the honour of it. You know, there was never a question in my mind that I would beg, steal or borrow to get the money together to be able to travel to Dublin. Once you were selected, you'd done that. But when the anthem starts to play down under, is she thinking maybe it could have been me? Do you feel a little bit jealous? Yes and no. I mean, I, I feel like the girls that I played with the team of 1973 that are still a great bunch of friends. Um, We started something. We started a belief that, you know what, women can play soccer. Nobody told us we couldn't. We played on our pitches in the summertime, you know, when the ground was rock hard because we could only get the pitches when the men were finished their season. And I know... Every last one of them. It won't be a regret. It will be a sense of pride that we were there at the beginning. We're not pulling on their apron strings. We're actually giving them a leg up and feel like our babies have grown up. And here we are. Something that started 50 years ago has come to fruition. It shouldn't have taken that long. But you know what? We'll take it. Jackie McCarthy on Liveline. And for documentary maker Ross Whitaker, a similar sentiment about Vera Powell's team. His doc is called The Road Down Under and follows the team on their path to the World Cup. He joined Ray and it's not that long ago that the women's team were changing in the lose. Somebody says, I don't know if it's Tony O'Donoghue or George Hamilton, it could have been Jackie Hurley. This is one of the big sports stories in our history as a nation. I think uh, it is. Just yeah. the qualifying. It's, it's I a, think it's, it's huge. huge. Like, you know, I just think the journey they've been on, because they've done this, the next generation don't have to do it. They don't have to go on strike. They don't have to change in the airport toilets. You know, they don't have to kind of uh, talk about who they are. You know, they've paved the way and they've broken down all the barriers. And to me, that's huge. You know, the idea that girls and young boys will be looking up to Katie McCabe and Denise O'Sullivan and all the rest of the great players that we have over the next few weeks mm. and wanting to be them. Mm. Like, that's just off the charts. Yeah, because it's, like, it's only th- four years ago that that campaign, and somebody will correct me if I'm wrong, uh, if you can't see it, you can't be it. Mm. Uh, and now, we, you know, everyone will be able to see this. Yeah. And that's happened so quickly. Unbelievable. And uh, like, uh, I think I just said to you, off air, I was driving over here past five, four or five billboards that have the Irish team on it. You know, a couple of months ago, that was Katie Taylor and Kelly Harrington were on those billboards. Yeah. Everywhere you look now, yeah. you're seeing it. Yeah. You know, Rachel Blackmore is like, was over in the UK last year in, in Manchester. Gigantic Rachel Blackmore billboard, you yeah. know, for the Grand National. So, like, we are seeing it now. And it's definitely, you see it, like, at the matches, there's so many young girls. You drive mm. around any housing state in Ireland, there's young girls out playing football. The gyms can hardly, you know, move for girls coming in to do boxing. Like, that's something I've been hearing. Like, there's huge numbers of girls in, yeah. in the boxing gyms. It's incredible. Come on, the women. 
but all is fair in love and football and we were not above trying to turn some of the Aussie team you know who you are Mary Fowler Ballymun Daddy and yet you are playing for the Matildas Gary Gray Australian ambassador to Ireland was borderline obnoxious on drive time we are a bit arrogant Cormac I can't <laughs> claim not to be but when ah, you got Mary go. Fowler out here of the we. wing when you got a team with the balance poise pace and skill that we've got oh, mate this, give us a break this is disgusting Sarah yeah well you mentioned Mary Fowler there <laughs> ambassador she's she's one of ours she went and stuns up there. <laughs> I, I, you know, give us a break. Give us a break. We're Australians. We're the big Irish island. And right now I'm on the little Irish island. <laughs> well, now you're just rubbing it in. Next match, Canada, Wednesday. Back in a bit. Welcome back. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Could we just put a filter on you because it's all a bit real. Pinch lips, triangles of sadness, nay despair. Might you be tempted for a little bit of filler? Mm, a teensy pound of forehead, smooth like a fat baby bottom. Or not. Dr Rosemary Coleman is a consultant dermatologist and she was not necessarily a fan. She spoke to Philip and if you thought that all of this was perhaps the preserve of the older clientele, think again. There is no minimum age for administration of fillers or Botox. So in England, about two years ago, there was a big um, study. I don't know the current figures. I know they will be higher. 6% of children aged 13 to 16 had a non-medical cosmetic procedure. What? And over 100,000 children had non-medical cosmetic procedures. Now, what 16-year-old... So hang on, sorry, is, is that Botox or is, is that durable fillers? Uh, that's, that's surgery, Botox, fillers, a non-a cosmetic procedure. Teenagers? Uh, children children so this is the trouble like it's very common in ireland for 17 and 18 year olds to go into town and get cheap fillers and pump up their lips and i hear often from patients typically in my acne clinic where i'd see a lot of teenagers they say there's a lot of pressure to have these big lips for the instagram and the tiktok uh, photos and the selfies there's an obsession with selfies but let's not be too down on the young'uns. Maybe they think they're getting ahead of the wrinkles by getting in early. They would be wrong. What are the consequences, Rosemary, of doing this at that age? Are there different side effects, more lasting effects that somebody who is in their 40s or 50s wouldn't experience? Excellent question. First of all, if they sell these procedures at prices more cheaply than I could buy the fillers. So they're obviously using very cheap products in plenty of clinics. That's number one. So we don't know the consequences of those. They could get very nasty tissue reactions and they can be permanent. If a blood vessel is blocked, they can be left with permanent scarring. They can be left with blindness. They can be left with stretched, flabby skin, such as if if a woman carries twins or triplets. The skin on the tummy, even if she doesn't get stretch marks, it will never go back to normal because skin is like plastic and when it's overstretched, it doesn't just bounce back. So they can be left with a puffy face. And the influencers are financially motivated to sell and they trivialize the procedures. They don't tell them the downside. Like, for example, they don't tell them that if they start having Botox at 18 and 19, which they are actually doing in Ireland, 
that they will develop antibodies at quite an early age, just like we all got antibodies from the vaccine. It's mm. the same principle. So if you keep so putting in small work, amounts of Botox, it won't work. So when they do start to get wrinkles at 35 and 40, the Botox will be totally ineffective. But the message the social influencers are giving out, according to my patients, is that if you do Botox and fillers early, you will not age. We will prevent you from ageing. And that's a lie. Dr. Rosemary Coleman scaring us all into feeling just a little bit more content with our wrinkles and saggy bits. But there was a time when all of this quest for perfection could be blamed on a tiny piece of plastic. Hiya, Bobby. Hi, Ken. You want to go for a ride? Sure, Ken. Jump in. I'm a Bobby girl in the Bobby world. Life in plastic, it's fantastic. You can brush my Don't meet your heart out. It is catchy. But this week, the anatomical wonder has been given a cinematic reboot under the direction of Greta Gerwig, a feminist take on the plastic fantastic. But Sarah McInerney, more Cindy than that shameless hussy. I didn't like Barbie. I never liked Barbie. I sort of, <gasps> I sort of hated Barbie. Oh, no. <laughs> I know, I'm so sorry. Oh, but for Ali Ryan of Goss Media, we just didn't understand her. Barbie, that is. I think people have this bad idea of Barbie. Like, I remember growing up and having Barbie's clothes, Barbie's car, Barbie's dream house. It was never Barbie and Ken's dream house. It was Barbie's. So for me, Barbie has always been almost like this feminist icon. Like, I grew up being like, she's stylish. She goes shopping. She has a nice car. She has a nice house. She's off going to work every day. Like, Barbie is what you make it. And in my mind, when I was playing make-believe, that's what she was doing. And I grew up then wanting to go to Malibu, wanting to have long blonde hair, wanting to wear pink, which probably sounds ridiculous. But now, like my brand, Gosh.ie, it is pink. I do have long blonde hair. Like, <laughs> it's not the worst thing to aspire towards. And I preferred playing with Barbies and playing make-believe stories than, you know, pretending to sweep the room or play with my fake kitchen, you know, which is a lot more geared towards old school ideas of women. I personally felt that Barbie was an independent woman. She was out doing her thing. For me, Ken didn't really come into it. And I think the thing I love about the movie is that it's bringing a whole new generation of Barbie fans in, but this time it's with a twist. But the waist, the hips and the rest. Come on. I know you say there's lots of different Barbies, like in the different sort of shapes and sizes and and, and all of that and colours and everything. Um, But Barbie, original Barbie, is she not is she not a little bit problematic? Is she not? Oh, no, she is. She is. Like, now I will say when I was that small, I wouldn't have noticed things like that. I think it's something you notice when you get older and you're a teenager and you're starting to question your own body shape. Like, I remember when I was a teenager going, God, waist like that don't even exist. Mm. I mean, like, the original Barbie is not physically possible. You know, you wouldn't be able to bear a child with those hips. Indeed. But might this film be a case of revisionist Barbie? And I think it's going to really change the conversation around Barbie. And I think the movie is quite a lot to do with masculinity and femininity too. Because we have to remember, right, the conversations about Barbie, what effect did she have on young girls, blah, blah, blah. What about Ken? There's a lot of boys that maybe wanted to play Barbies when they were younger and they weren't really allowed. Now the posters for Barbie, there's boys playing with Barbies in them. I had a quick look on a toy store earlier to see what Barbies are available. There's Barbies in wheelchairs. There's different different ethnic Barbies, different size Barbies. It really has changed. And I think there's our inner 
inner child all wanted to be Barbie in some way and maybe that wasn't represented before I do think in the movie we'll probably get some sort of ending where Barbie and Ken don't really need each other at all they just need themselves and I think that's mm-hmm. going to be the vibe I haven't seen it yet but I think that's what it's about and that's why I love the pure campaign that it's taken over because aesthetically we're like ooh pink glitter fun I don't think people are realising what it's about and I think it's going to be really heartwarming I think people boys and girls will walk out and be like okay I get it now There's a message and that's what here. I love about it okay. yeah but by yesterday morning, the verdicts were in. A soft pastel pink or a hot cerise. Even Morning Ireland was getting in on the act. Here's Helen O'Hara from Empire magazine. Tell me about Barbie the movie. Does it live up to the hype? Do you know what? It's not It's not at all what you expect it's going to be. I mean, Greta Gerwig obviously has made two great films as a director with Lady Bird and Little Women, uh, which are fantastic, fantastic stories um, already. And even given that, I didn't expect how funny and sharp and socially relevant, believe it or not, the Barbie movie is. Um, this is a I know, film hang that, on, that... how does that work? Because Barbie is the epitome, is she not, of pink and blonde and um, practically perfect? Exactly. But she leaves Barbie land where that is very much her life um, to come to the real world and finds, you know, that things are not as she expected. She the, the Barbies in this in this universe believe that because there's a president Barbie and an astronaut Barbie and all the rest, that that basically feminism is solved now and everyone has equality. So when she comes to the real world, she's in for a, sadly a rude awakening. So that allows them yeah. to sort of have a fish out of water story examining some of the stuff that's gone wrong for us. But to finish this from Anya, perhaps the line of the week. And Ken kind of takes to patriarchy, does he? Oh, morning Ireland, we've never loved you more. Now, at this point, you might be wondering... What about men? I'm sorry, pardon? What about men? But turns out that is the title of a new book from Catelyn Moran. Her aim, a manifesto for men young and old. She spoke to Oliver. Why would you go here then? Why would you talk about men? What specific reason are you here? Well, I'd spent the last 10, 15 years talking about the women and the ladies. Mm -hmm. And uh, whenever I'd do an event, the second or third question I'd be asked after an hour of talking about the women and the ladies uh, would be, oh yeah, but what about men? And at first I admit I was quite peevish in my response. I was like, ah, they're fine. (laughs) Kind of like, also I don't care. Uh, They will have to sort out their problems themselves. Also, it would be the ultimate irony of feminism, would it not, if women had to solve all of women's problems and then solve all the problems of men. But then it was International Women's Day two years ago and I was doing an event at a college with some 15 and 16-year-olds, half boys, half girls. Thought we'd be talking about the problems of women and girls and the boys hijacked it. And they were like, no, it's men that have the problems now. It's Mm -hmm. harder to be a man than a woman. Women are winning and boys are losing. And they were angry. And when you deal with people who are angry, you know that they're scared because anger is just fear brought to the boil. And I was like, okay, this has got to be my next book. Why is this generation of boys so scared of women? Why do they think they're losing? And frankly, these next statistics are a little scary. Boys are more likely to be medicated at school for disruptive behaviour. They're more likely to be excluded from school, less likely to go on to further education, more likely to join a gang, more likely to be addicted to drugs or alcohol or pornography. Uh, more like They make up the majority of the homeless population and the prison population. Mm-hmm. And one in five, uh, uh, and, and suicide is the leading cause of death for men under the age of 50. So that's a big set of problems, mainly around communication and education. It all starts at school. So that was the sort of, those are the facts that I wanted to go into the book with. But then have fun with it, because I think the reason that if boys do think that women are winning and boys are losing at the moment, it's because women have invented feminism. And for the last 15 years, we've just found a brilliant way to talk about the problems of being a woman that makes 
you know, the thing we hear all the time is the future is female. Like kind of like it's lists of women who are going to change the world. And I want that sense of hope and discussion for the boys to have Should that too now. And a lot of this, she says, comes down to how boys and girls communicate. Before the age of seven, pretty much the same. But then the boys begin to fight. I just didn't realise how sort of like common the fear of violence is. Like kind of every boy that I know had been in a fight. I've never been in a fight. And this explained one thing that had always really intrigued me about men. All the boys were saying that when they go to school, you have to work out who you could beat in a fight and who would be able to beat you in a fight. Which suddenly I now understood all the men that I know of my age who will sit in a pub for two hours going, what would win in a fight, a bear or a swan? (laughs) And I was like, that starts in childhood. You have to work out who you could beat in a fight. Well, actually, I I kind of strayed away in that chapter because you gave one of the examples of... Uh, men talking about who would like would Sean Connery's James Bond be able to beat up Daniel Craig's room? I was gone off thinking about that. I've been thinking about it ever since. So what do you reckon? Because I was <laughs> deeping this earlier. So what, who do you think would win in that fight? I, I said Daniel Craig obviously yeah. being more ripped He's and fitter. lies yeah. whereas Sean Connery's from the you know the good drunken 70s era. but he is taller and I just thought maybe if Sean Connery got Daniel Craig in a headlock he's got the he leverage would, yeah, yeah there was kind of no way back then for Daniel Craig I think also I think Sean Connery would have the benefit of crazy I think Sean Connery's an old school man I think he'd fight dirty so he would maybe do he would kick Daniel Craig up the bum and then Daniel Craig would be offended by this That's his dignity right. would be destroyed yes. and psychologically that would be devastating yeah, be so, yeah. I mean like Heineken Zero Man versus Sean Connery exactly. smoking drinking era yeah. Glasgow Milkman you know. yeah surprise him he'd hit him on the head with a tray and go ha ha and then <laughs> And Daniel Craig's sort of rada training would be offended by it. Oh, nice wee sidebar, but come on, back on topic. So, if you look for role models for young men, what do you find? So when I looked for good role models for boys, I googled most loved men in the world. Yeah. And it took me 10 Google search pages to find the first list of most loved men because the return I kept getting was the most powerful men in the world. And I think that's my my fundamental worry with people like Andrew Tate and Jordan B. Peterson. They're talking, they're saying that power is what men need, that that's what will cure your depression and anxiety and worry about your place in the world. And power never made anyone depressed and anxious happy. What you want is empowerment. Mm. How do you self-soothe? How do you educate yourself? How do you feel like you're part of something? How do you change the definition of what it is that you are? And that's what feminism did for women. We didn't want power over men. We just wanted to be empowered. Yes. And that's what I'm hoping that boys, that's the conversation I feel that we need to start now. It's not about getting power over women. It's about empowering yourselves, which you can do on your own. You don't need to oppress a load of women. It'll save you so much time. But with the likes of Andrew Tate filling that gap for teenage boys and then you throw in a little bit of online porn, a lot of potential for nasty. But we are all in this together, so there is hope. What I observed worked for women and the feminist movement is just starting from a place of joy and hope. You know, what is brilliant about women? What do we love about women? And we need to do this about boys. Like, it's got to the point now where, you know, I've been doing this tour for two weeks and when I say the phrase straight white man... I still feel quite tense because that's usually the start of a horrible conversation or people being bigoted or homophobic or racist. But if you can't, if you are a straight white man and saying what you are sounds a bit shameful and you're worried you're going to be attacked. For a generation of boys, if you can't even say what you are, name the category you're in, then we, we come into a very negative world. So I wanted to start with joy and hope and positivity. What's good about men? What do we love about our boys? You know, at the end of the day, we're all just brothers and sisters on the back seat of a car, you know, driving off to our ultimate destination, which is, you know, to be existential, the grave. So you know, we're here for a very short period of time and we need to get on and be happy in the back seat together. Catlin Moran and her book, What About Men? Back in a bit. Welcome back.
This week, the Doc on One podcast series Finding Samantha was broadcast every evening and an intriguing story unravelled. A distressed young girl wandering around O'Connell Street, taken into Gartha custody for her own safety. It would turn out she was an adult Australian woman who had assumed over 100 false identities. For Detective Inspector Aaron Power, it was a girl called Harper Hart who had enrolled in a school in Sydney. The photograph of Samantha as a party from her Irish escapades was on the internet. I got my field intelligence officer to go out and take some contemporaneous photographs of Harper Hart going to the Good Shepherd School. And she certainly did look like a 13-year-old girl. Remember, Samantha was 28 years old at this time. With freckles and short pants and, and the latest T-shirt and braids in the hair and all that. Despite all of this information, the Foster family were still refusing to cooperate, as was Harper Hart. And so we went to the Good Shepherd School where the teachers um, gave us a sample of her homework. And sure enough, um, the fingerprints of Samantha as a party were all over Harper Hart's homework. And at that stage, she'd been placed into another foster home. She was now, we know, a 28-year-old woman living with little kids. Uh, and on that basis, the situation had to be resolved quickly. When we arrested her, we noticed that the freckles she had on her face making her look like a little 13-year-old girl were actually fake. They were actually drawn on by her. They were makeup. What was her response when she was arrested? She knew who we were. It's like she could smell police. She was very uh, cool and calculated. She seemed very disciplined. She had no emotional response, uh, wouldn't cooperate with police, wouldn't answer any questions, and maintained her, her right to silence. And immediately she put her back to the camera, which is in the charge room, put her hoodie up and, uh, like a boxer on the ropes, put her hands over her face. And, and we believe she was avoiding being photographed by the closed circuit TV in the charge room. Worthy of a binge, be it podcast or listen back. Finding Samantha from the Doc on One. On the Albanac of Ireland, a new series, Hooray, wrought iron gates, which, for Monko McGann, is something of an obsession. And he's not alone. Here is Shem Caulfield, artist, sculptor and community activist from Thomastown in Kilkenny. And even opening a gate can involve a sort of time travel. I sometimes suffer from being a sort of metaphysician. <laughs> you know, uh, I've gates and a liminal sort of space. I've just been in, like in there between those, leaning on that gate on the outside, opening it and moving it, and moving into the enclosed space. So when you open that gate, you're opening up an enclosed space into another. That liminal space that gates offer, that threshold between one space and another, very powerful. And to me, it's kind of full and rich with that sort of texture of, of life. It's like anything, like a piece of art, work of art. If you spend your time with a gate, it'll tell you its story. Meanwhile, spare a thought for Sinead Yulhorn, she was going mud larking, essentially rummaging around a riverbed for a treasure, and by treasure we mean a rusty coin and possibly a mangled spoon in the rain. Can I ask you, am I playing that, that sound effect in or is that, is that <laughs> no, real? 
I'm drenched here. <laughs> Do you know what? I think that they knew that I was about to go on air, the gods above, Mother Nature, because it's after just bucketing down. But I have a brolly <laughs> yeah. and I'm sheltering under the trees. But maybe somebody could take this audio and use it for an audio yeah, just SFX we'll, we'll, we'll album for a while. in future. We'll shush for a while and just let the rain do its thing. Listen to this. That's sort of nice. I like that. I like it. It's sort of comforting. It is sort of comforting. Uh, now, yeah. well, a perfect day for mud larking because the more it rains, the more there's mud and the more you can lark in the mud. Yeah. And what I was the perfect day, Ray, says the man in the warm, dry studio. But there has been quite inclement weather this week and rain here. But in other parts of the world, temperatures very high indeed. July is set to be the world's hottest month in hundreds, if not thousands of years, according to reports from NASA. This month has already seen daily records broken, according to tools run by the European Union and the University of Maine in the United States. NASA climatologists say there are unprecedented changes in climate happening all over the world and the heat waves in the US, Europe and China are breaking records. And all week long, Philip Boucher, Hot Mess Hayes, covered items on our climate emergency from warming seas to the health impacts of such extreme temperatures. And while we here in Ireland may not be getting those kinds of heat waves here yet, there are other knock-ons. Philip got the view of John Sweeney, climate scientist and emeritus professor at Maynooth University. John, obviously Ireland is never in any lifetime of anybody listening to this programme going to experience anything like this. But there is a very interesting report that was published by the world's leading science journal Nature very recently, which points to the number, the relative number of uh, days that urban centres in Ireland are going to experience a need for cooling demand. Yes, that's right. Um, we, we know that during the heat wave in June, for example, um, air conditioning systems were flying out of the stores in a way that they hadn't really for a long time. Um, and yes, it's true that as our temperature increases, we will see an increase in demand for those. But it's coming from a relatively low base. And I don't think we need to concern ourselves too much with a really massive change there in the way that many African countries and many Southern European countries will. Mm. We're very lucky in the sense that we're protected from the really extremes of 40 plus by the surrounding ocean. And it will take some years, maybe decades, for us to get up into that level of temperature increase. But certainly our towns and cities are going to perhaps think a little more in planning for adaptation to, to heat hot conditions, more in the way of greenery. And it was one of the nature restoration laws um, requirements that cities would start having 20% canopy cover um, to protect from heat in the future. So there are changes required. And it is important also because this is a silent killer and um, 60,000 people plus died prematurely in Europe last year from heat wave conditions. Ooh, and every headline on the news is telling us that we need to mend our ways. But it was David on Tuesday's Liveline who called us out on our all too human ability to know what we should do and then just do what we want. Hop on a plane. We are all sinners. People travelling to the Costa del whatever it's not possible to travel there the way we travel sustainably. There's no such thing as a free lunch. And my concern is that I don't feel as if people connect 
what's happened, what we're being told in the news, to their behaviour. And, and whether those people are feeling it economically now, trust me, next, next summer, people will be thinking very, very, very differently about going to Costa del Happy Funtime, whatever you want to call it. it it's a ticking clock, right? And, and those people's livelihoods are literally about to be massively impacted by this, um, by, by this summer. And, and, and where are those people going to start coming? They're going to start coming to places that are, have equitable temperatures, like Ireland. Um, and then our resources then will be subject to larger and larger influx of tourism. I'm, I'm curious how we're going to feel about that. So our warmer and wetter summers might in and of itself become an attraction. But where then will that leave the economies of those popular Mediterranean resorts? In terms of the, the economies of the places we're talking about, we are talking about, as you say, the mm. very, very popular tourist spots, uh, you know, <clears throat> yeah. Spain, Italy, Greece, the places that are now, mm. you know, burning up uh, in, in, you know, mm. into the, the, the high 30s and, and mid 40s even mm. in some places. Mm. Like their entire mm. economies are based around people like us yeah. going there for the, the week yeah. or two every year. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that, the, that's that, the first that, economic that, hit that's going to come their way, surely. That, 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 that's, that's unfortunately a deal with the devil um, in that, and it's the same a bit with agriculture, that our, our, the, 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 the agricultural reliance on, on, on a way of farming, for example, that is climatically impactful, it's very hard to get out of that. Similarly, it's very hard to get out from working in, I'm not saying tourism as a whole is unsustainable, but that method of travel, the, 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 the products we use, the things we buy, the air conditioning, the travel, all that sort of stuff is inherently I'm sorry to say it, I love a holiday, don't get me wrong. I love a holiday, but it's fundamentally unsustainable. And, and, and the existential crisis here is not the, the tourism economy in these locations is going to take a dip. That's temporary. That's fundamentally temporary. Industries come and industries go. What we can't let go is a liv- livable planet. From Liveline. On Thursday, Arena went down to Galway for the Arts Festival and there, Limerick-born photographer and DJ Brian Cross spoke to Sean about his exhibition The West is Awake from one West Coast to another, the other being Los Angeles and the hip-hop scene there. If we think of somebody like the Notorious B.I.G., yep. you know, gangster rapper, one of the greatest of all time, many would say, yep. but he died in violent circumstances, obviously having him involved in the whole East Coast, West Coast thing in America. I mean, that was a dangerous world to be in. Did you ever feel any kind of threat in those type of situations? To be honest, no. Um, from my perspective, the whole East Coast, West Coast thing was very much media-driven, made for good headlines, and did end up in the death of the two most important rappers of that era, which is a sort of cataclysmic a tragedy to, to some degree which hip-hop hasn't recovered from. Um, but meeting big, you know, I mean, you have to imagine, we, we, we have this tendency to, to separate, uh, you know, hip-hop from the world in which it, it's born out of. I mean, the real violence, honestly, uh, in, in, in that era are the, is the violence being done to those communities by the, the people who brought in uh, weapons and drugs. Both Tupac and Biggie were 26 years old when they passed. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, was, it was, you know, he was a very, very sweet, very intelligent young guy when I met him. I'm only a few years older than him, but what I, what I remember of meeting him was just how two people I've met in my life that had incredibly soft hands, Biggie Smalls and John Lee Hooker. 
I mean, that's what I remember. Yeah, he's very sweet. We had a very sort of brief and sweet conversation, and I made that photograph. And he, he died less than a kilometer from, you know, he was murdered less than a kilometer from where that photograph was made. And that always gives me a weird feeling when I see it, because you can actually, if you look in the, in the background of the photograph, you can see where he was murdered, which is quite mad. From Arena. And we are almost at a finish here, but we will end where we began. Sport and the Lee McCarthy Cup Limerick to take it back home again. Or Kilkenny denied no longer. Days on Morning Ireland brought us this prediction from the filling in the sandwich, so to speak. Wedged in between the two counties of Kilkenny and Limerick is Tipperary. And that's where we'll go for the verdict of Tipperary's great goalkeeper, Brendan Cummins. Good morning, Brendan. Morning, Des. How's it going? Do you want either of them to win? <laughs> <laughs> a draw and a replay the way the hurling has gone. It might get us deeper into the summer as well, which would suit our hurling agenda. But um, look, there's no doubt Des Luck is going to be it's going to be tight like it was last year. Um, I think both teams have shown great form coming in. Limerick seemed to have peaked just at the right time based on their, their semi-final performance against Galway and certainly Kilkenny have shown the resilience that we all know is in them obviously and in in serious moments like the Ireland semi-final against Clare they showed also that they could get the goals and uh, punish any mistakes which got them across the line against what we were seeing as one of the best teams in Munster. All right, if, if I asked you to pick for one, I mean I think everyone acknowledges that it'll be tight, which way would you swing? Uh, I think I swing towards um, towards Limerick. Um, I think the reason is Limerick, uh, over over course and distance, have shown like that in tight games they're able to they're able to finish it. Um, and I think that will be key inside. Obviously, Galan and Flanagan, as Mikey Butler and Hugh Lawler will be will be absolutely key. But Cody for me up the other end with TJ. There's only one inside three that gives a huge threat all the time. And I think because Galan and Flanagan inside give more of a threat and more of a scoring or goal scoring threat, I suppose, will be enough maybe for Limerick to get across the line. Ooh, and according to the Limerick leader, they may have God on their side. Their coverage today is, is quite curious. A Limerick nun has denied plans and rumours that she is going to turn the communion host green on Sunday, uh, the Limerick colours, to mark the four in a row efforts and the hurling heroes. But she's now clarified there's no plans in the making. Now, it's quite hard to believe her when you see a picture of her in front of the altar, which is entirely draped in Limerick Gansies, and there's a come on there and a flag and all sorts of some sort of kind of devout homage to Declan Hannan and the boys. Um, so she says, look, there's a, the hurling means a lot, but there's only one true altar, one true host, and this stands above else. I still don't know if she's talking about um, our Lord or she means Limerick. So, you know, her, her loyalties are divided now. Sipish. Sister Patricia Cochran, we're watching you very much now. Mm, but only a fool would write off Kilkenny. And if these cats are anything to go by, they have the backing of the county. Morning Ireland's Conor Kane monitored the decibel levels. Oh, it's going to be some game. Well, that is it from this week's playback. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next week and get ready to sashay with the coolest of cats, the legendary Tony Bennett. I know I'd go from rags to riches If you would only say you care Though my pocket may be empty I'd be a millionaire